Nuclear hope. What will it take to save the world from the horror of nuclear weapons? Who will do it? What will they have to do? What can they do? And where will these people come from? It's one thing to understand that nuclear weapons are bad, a threat to the existence of life on Earth, yada yada. But the countries that have these weapons of mass destruction won't even consider getting rid of them. To try to convince them seems the height of folly. But then, you find yourself at a gathering, with hundreds of committed activists from around the world, people who oppose nuclear weapons, who understand and are committed to getting rid of them. And then, you hear them and you. Addressed by a woman newly arrived in her position to lead the charge against nuclear weapons, and she tells you and everyone assembled there, the horror of this past legacy of nuclear weapons use and testing is amplified by the very real and justified concern that nuclear weapons will be used again by design or accident. Uh, that the way they pose an existential threat to all life on Earth every moment they exist is unacceptable. That concern is one of the reasons we're all here. The other reason is our confidence and our determination that together we can eliminate nuclear weapons. As Margaret Mead famously said, "Never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has." Well, look around this room. We're not a small group anymore, <laughs> and together we are changing the world. Well. When Melissa Park, the executive director of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, tells an auditorium filled with like-minded nuclear campaigners from around the world and delivers an inspiring message, you might discover a little tickle of hope in your heart that maybe, just maybe, we will together be able to move the world toward sanity and out of that scary, awful, dangerous seat. That we all share. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halavi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a very special report from Nuclear Hot Seat. Direct from the United Nations Second Meeting of States Parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This is where the countries that have ratified the treaty are engaged in the process of ratification, or are considering whether to start the process of ratification, have gathered with civil society and nuclear campaigners. The goal: to participate in the process of moving the treaty closer to passage by the majority of the world. And to put pressure on the nuclear weapons states to divest themselves of their existing weapons, more than 240 campaigners from more than 30 countries 
join together to network, brainstorm, share information, and do the hard work of figuring out ways to put forth their message. No nukes. I was there in New York at the UN for five days, and you'll hear from campaigners from around the world, youths, veterans, survivors of nuclear war and bomb tests, uranium mining on indigenous lands, and a wide range of individuals representing groups that want the end of nuclear weapons and their threat. So gather round and give a listen to history in the process of being made, and hear how, if you want to get rid of nuclear weapons, you are most definitely not alone. Today is Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, and here is a special report on the United Nations Second Meeting of States Parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or TPNW, is the first legally binding international agreement to comprehensively prohibit nuclear weapons, with the ultimate goal being their total elimination. For those nations that are party to it, the treaty prohibits the development, testing, production, stockpiling, stationing, transfer, use, and threat of use of nuclear weapons, as well as assistance and encouragement to the prohibited activities. It was adopted on July 7 of 2017, and as of the opening of the second meeting of states' parties on November 27, 2023, there were 93 signatory countries and 69 states' parties in the process of ratification. The week's event, known colloquially as Nuclear Ban Week New York, kicked off with a full Sunday of presentations and meetings at the venerable Brick Church on the Upper East Side of New York. I walked into an auditorium filled with more than 200 high-energy campaigners from around the world, and I quickly discovered that no matter who I talked to, they had information, a story, insights, and a passion for getting rid of the nuclear threat. So I just walked up to whoever was there, pointed my telephone microphone at them, asked a few basic questions, and then listened as activists and a surprisingly large number of the youth of the world talk about what they want, what they fear, and what they're doing about it. My name is Aigirim Sitsenova. I'm from Kazakhstan and currently I'm a founding member of the SEP Organization for Peace, Kazakh Youth Initiative for Nuclear Justice. What does the group do? What are you focused on? We're focusing on raising awareness about our nuclear legacy and the humanitarian ecological consequences of the Soviet nuclear testing on the Kazakh land. What are some of the most pressing issues? The main issue, I think that there is a lack of understanding of how, how nuclear testing affects different generations of people, the third and the fourth. It affects the human body and the human health and our environment. So my region where I was born, where nuclear tests took place from 1949 until 1989, is one of the leading regions for cancer, for example. And the test site itself, the territory was so big, so really big territory of my homeland. We can't use it for a lot of purposes because of nuclear tests. So the land and environment were scarred, ecosystem has been changed, the human health has been irrevocably changed as well. There are so many different health issues across different generations. And that's what we see now at the moment. 
And you said at the beginning that you were what generation nuclear survivor? I'm a third generation a nuclear survivor, but officially I'm not considered. I don't have a victim passport because I was born after the test site was closed. So officially, the third generations were not considered as victims of nuclear testing because intergenerational impact is never acknowledged. Which is, of course, the same here in the United yes. States. <laughs> yes. This is a question that I ask across the board. What scares you the most about nuclear? <sighs> what scares me the most is that I think that not only that we have 13 thousand nuclear weapons, but also what scares me the most that a lot of people will give up at some point. A lot of nuclear disarmament folks and activists. So we have to push, I don't know, motivate each other to, to go further, to do everything we can to, to see the world by 2045 without nuclear weapons. My name is Lynn Jemison and I'm the chair of the Scottish Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And I'm here to help work to strengthen the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. But in Scotland we have a particular issue because we are the site of the UK's nuclear weapons system. And that system is dependent on the United States. The missiles are leased from the United States. The design of the bombs is dependent on the nuclear states, uh, the United States, and so our so-called independent weapon system, in fact, is very United States of America dependent, but it's also against the will of the Scottish people. The majority of people in Scotland do not want nuclear weapons on our land or in our seas, but at the moment, the sole base for these weapons is in Scotland, very near Glasgow, the largest city in Scotland, the centre of our population, in a way that wouldn't be tolerated elsewhere. But we don't have really a voice because we're a minority population within the United Kingdom. We have not voted for the current government, but that is the government that we have. And so we believe that if we had an independent Scotland, we would help to disarm the United Kingdom and it would be the beginning of a step towards a nuclear free world. So that's why I'm here. A Joey Tao. I'm here from the Pacific, from a regional organization called the Pacific Network and Globalization. We work on nuclear justice issues in the Pacific, knowing very well the Pacific has a legacy of nuclear testing in um, years back. So I think that's one that really draws us to this forum, uh, but most, more specifically to this treaty, uh, which is quite important uh, in terms of victims, nuclear testing and uh, issues that have not been resolved. But also very more, today, drawing it back to today's context, is we, there are growing nuclear threats to the region in terms of security and military buildup, uh, but also in nuclear energy disposal ways into the Pacific. And what scares you most about nuclear? That's a really, really good question. I mean, coming from a region that we see the, the victims and the survivors of nuclear and how it is continuing to impact generations, uh, and that's what scares me with regards to these arising threats to the region, but also how the, the concerns and the issues raised by victims and survivors are not looked at, are not addressed. Uh, it's something, you know, we're 2023, 40 years ago, testing happened in the Pacific, and yet there is no justice being 
taken on. So yeah, that's what scares me. As there is a military build-up, there are rising threats, but yet there is very little action towards that. Miyuki, M-I-Y-U-K-I. What group are you here from and what country are you here from? Um, I'm from Sokagaka International. I'm from Japan. Why are you here? What do you hope to accomplish this week at these meetings? Mm. So I'm here to attend a second meeting of state bodies to the TPNW. I'm also part of Youth for TPNW and coordinating Youth MSP, Youth Meeting of State Bodies. So we, I really hope um, to expand our network of young people across the world so that we can uh, really expand this movement like um, from civil society bottom up. Kendra Wahlgren Eels. So I'm here from the Swedish Peace and Arbitration Society from Sweden, obviously. Uh, and I'm here as uh, a part of their sort of campaign uh, towards young people. So I'm a part of the sort of youth uh, part of side of things, uh, which I think is uh, extremely important. And it's an honor to be here and to, to get the opportunity to go with the Swedish Peace and Arbitration Society as well. I think it's very easy to sort of abandon the younger generations, especially when it comes to security issues that are often like uh, reserved for elites or uh, experts. And it sort of depoliticizes things when uh, actually the young has a very important role in these issues. It's an honor to be here and it's very exciting. What scares you most about nuclear? I think what scares me the most is that it's become so normalized that even talking to people of sort of the same progressive like political viewpoints, there's still this idea that we need nuclear weapons to ensure that we have security on a global or on an uh, international level, that we need it for mutually assured destruction that is necessary. And I think that is the normalization is what scares me the most, that it doesn't have to look like that. There are other perspectives, there are other world orders that don't include mass destruction as like the highest form of security. That's what scares me the most, I think. Hi, my name is Epeli Lesuma. I am joining you today from uh, Fiji in the Pacific. I'm with the Pacific Network on Globalization, or PANG for short. What are you hoping to accomplish by being here? I think for, for, for us, having traveled so far, it's about um, ensuring that Pacific voices are represented, often in this space, because uh, we're the most uh, furthest away from places like New York and the UN. There's a tendency sometimes for our stories to be forgotten. So I'm hoping that we're able to advocate and be the voice for those that can't be here today. And what scares you most about nuclear? I think the thing that scares me the most is that it's, it's still around. Um, for us in the Pacific, the most recent threat, I should say, to the Pacific Ocean comes with Japan's uh, wastewater dumping. You know, it's 2023. These things shouldn't even be happening, but it is. And the Pacific is once again being seen as a scapegoat for a for the global north and their nuclear issues. Petush Gilbert, I am from Acoma in the state of New Mexico. Spaniards called us pueblos, so we used that term, Acoma Pueblo, or Pueblo of Acoma. I, I work with several organizations. One there in New Mexico, the Multicultural Alliance for Safe Environment. Our core group of it is Laguna Acoma Coalition for a Safe Environment. I'm also the president of Indigenous World Association, which is a United Nations NGO. Why are you here and what are you hoping that is accomplished in the next several days of meetings? I'm here to emphasize how uranium fits in the nuclear fuel chain 
because that is what really evolves into nuclear power, nuclear energy, and nuclear weapons. But yet what's been disregarded is the evolvement and development of, one, the uranium that occurred on indigenous people's lands, and then ensuing bomb-making that still occurs today in New Mexico. And that's why I'm here really to emphasize how uranium fits into this whole picture of nuclear weapons. What makes you angriest and what makes you most frightened about nuclear? Yeah, consider that nuclearism and nuclear power is in a state of conundrum right now because uh, science can maybe peacefully develop it into a usable form, safe form of nuclear power. But because we're unable as humans today to control that kind of power, that kind of energy, it, I think we really need to consider how far do we want to go along this path of nuclearism all the way from the extraction of uranium to, to the weapons production. And I'm just here to, again, emphasize that question. Where do we go when we're just on the road to human destruction by nuclear weapons? I'm Dr. Becky Alexis-Martin, and I'm here on behalf of Lex International, which is BFIN's new organization, and the University of Bradford, where I'm an associate professor in peace studies. What sort of work do you do when you are back home and what brings you here to these meetings on the TPNW? I work directly on epistemic justice with the Kiribati community. So I spent this summer working with them to help them understand the treaty to ensure it was translated into Kiribati. I'm providing briefing workshops in both English and Kiribati about the TPNW to empower the community. So I've supported and there are five women in attendance from Kiribati and I help to organize their attendance. And the other thing I work on is creative practice. So it was going to be an exhibition of Kiribati's children's work, thinking about the past, the present and the future in light of nuclear weapons testing and climate change in the region. And what scares you most about nuclear? Well, I'm a qualified environmental scientist as well as a scholar in peace studies and an ethnographer. Um, and the thing that worries me is its permanence, the way it stays. Fifteen years ago, I did a master's in environmental management. I specialized in the remediation of soils containing radionuclides. We tried so many different methods. We tried supercritical fluid leaching. We tried paramagnetic separation. These methods still haven't reached the mainstream. So I really think we need to not bomb anywhere else and deal with the mess that we've already made. My name is Sab Garduño from Mexico City and I'm studying in California right now. What brought you here to the state's parties meeting in the ICANN campaigners? I'm a youth delegate for Youth for TPNW and I've been organizing against nuclear weapons for around a year and a half now. What scares you most about nuclear weapons? Their omnipresence and how little we know about them. I find that since I started organizing in this that like 70% of my time is spent explaining why nuclear weapons are bad. I think they're too bad for us. I think we need to learn more about them and be more aware of what it means, like the threat and the risk and whatnot. Pablo also drew my attention to a new feature on the ICANN site, nucleartestimpacts.org. It is an Alex Wellerstein nuke map style feature for tracking where nuclear tests happened and what the aftermath has been for the attendant populations. I will link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 650-650. There are many other voices of campaigners to share, and I will in the coming weeks. But the time had come to call the first session to order, and the first speaker was Melissa Park. As of September 
1st of this year, she has become the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Melissa is a former Australian Minister for International Development and a former Member of Parliament for the Australian Labour Party from 2007 to 2016. As an MP, she regularly voiced support for nuclear disarmament, including as a member of a cross-party parliamentary group dedicated to the cause. She has also been an ambassador for ICANN Australia and served as a patron of the Tom Urine Memorial Fund, which supports ICANN's work. She brings a subtle, powerful boldness to her speaking, as well as a poetic way of expressing herself. Here's what she said to welcome the hundreds of campaigners from around the world. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. And thank you all for being here, for being here in New York for this week and for today. I've only been Executive Director of ICANN for less than three months, but I know already that I'm in a room full of friends, a room full of people passionately committed to humanity and our beautiful planet. For those who don't know, my uh, background is as an international lawyer with the United Nations in places like Kosovo, Gaza, Lebanon, uh, New York and Yemen. I saw firsthand the impact of war on civilians, uh, have a treasured memory of a, uh, attending a Hiroshima commemoration ceremony in Gaza 21 years ago. And um, there were, it was at Gaza Harbour and there were hundreds of Palestinian children and they'd made little paper boats with candles in them and they lit the candles and set the boats afloat on the water and it was extremely beautiful but also incredibly moving to think that here were children who themselves were being subjected to bombing on a regular basis, remembering children in another time and place who'd been bombed. And that memory has particular resonance right now, of course, given current events. Following my time uh, in the UN, I was elected to the Australian Parliament and served for nine years as a federal parliamentarian, uh, Minister for International Development. My constituency that I represented was uh, Fremantle in Western Australia, a fantastic city of very progressive, caring people who, and the city of Fremantle uh, declared itself a nuclear weapons free zone. Um, it's the home of sort of nuclear disarmament in Western Australia. And uh, it's part of the Mayors for Peace campaign and the, the ICANN Cities Appeal. So I had a lot of dealings with, with, uh, with that uh, when I was in parliament. I was also very inspired by the memory of a former Australian minister and member of parliament, Tom Uren, who had years earlier uh, been a, a prisoner of war in Japan, just outside Nagasaki. And he'd witnessed the atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki. And when he came home, he spent the rest of his life campaigning for peace and nuclear disarmament. And he said the struggle against nuclear weapons is the most important struggle for the human race. During my time in Parliament, I was very focused on human rights, the environment, disarmament and um, social justice, uh, particularly for Australia's Aboriginal peoples. And you may have heard that Australia recently voted no in a referendum to recognise Aboriginal Australians in the Australian Constitution as the first Australians through a voice to Parliament. 
this would have been a body that would have only had power to make recommendations to Parliament, uh, not a decision-making body, not a veto-making body. It was a very uh, modest request, but it was voted down by an Australia that has yet to come to terms with its appalling colonial legacy. And I know that um, Karina Lester, one of the uh, survivors of British nuclear testing, is here with us today. And thank you for making the trip, Karina. Um, Karina is an ICANN Australia ambassador as well. So you probably know each other very well. I want to acknowledge, I want to acknowledge uh, even though our country hasn't, I want to acknowledge the Aboriginal people of Australia as the first Australians and acknowledge their gentle stewardship of the land for tens of thousands of years. Indigenous peoples of the world have always understood the connection between all things, people, animals, all of nature, and that there is a natural balance that must be respected. I'm convinced that most of the problems facing the world today, uh, nuclear weapons, climate change, mass extinctions, even war, stem from humanity's disconnection, sense of separation from nature and from each other, from forgetting that we on this planet are all ultimately connected. Our way back rests in rediscovering that truth. ICANN Australia, where of course ICANN began, uh, has recently commemorated the 70th anniversary of British nuclear weapons testing, of which Aboriginal Australians were the primary victims, along with veterans. Our neighbours in the Pacific endured decades of nuclear weapons testing, as did peoples in North America, Algeria and the steppes of Kazakhstan. I pay tribute too to the Habakusha for their strength and courage in telling their stories again and again in the hope that the world will finally come to its senses. The horror of this past legacy of nuclear weapons use and testing is amplified by the very real and justified concern that nuclear weapons will be used again by design or accident. Uh, that the way they pose an existential threat to all life on Earth every moment they exist is unacceptable. That concern is one of the reasons we're all here. The other reason is our confidence and our determination that together we can eliminate nuclear weapons. As Margaret Mead famously said, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Well, look around this room. We're not a small group anymore. <laughs> and together we are changing the world. The TPNW has already created a norm against nuclear threats. TPNW has already led to widespread acknowledgement of the importance of victim assistance and environmental remediation from nuclear weapons use and testing. TPNW has already led financial institutions to, to divest billions of dollars from nuclear weapons investment. The TPNW is the only place where disarmament action is actually happening. And we expect many more great things to come out of this second meeting of states parties, which we'll shortly be hearing about. But after this meeting of states parties, how do we keep the momentum going? There is not another MSP until 2025. It is my strong belief that we need to broaden the discussion about nuclear weapons beyond the silos of security and disarmament fora. We need to emphasise that the abolition of nuclear weapons is an essential part of protecting and respecting the planet, 
the climate, humanity and all living things. We need to stress the interconnectedness of nuclear weapons with the environment, with, with health, with human rights and development. There can be no nuclear weapons on a sustainable planet. This is the continuation of the democratisation of the nuclear weapons debate that the TPNW has started. It's a call for greater connection, compassion and creativity and all of you are an essential part of that. I look forward to working with you in the months and years ahead. Thank you. Melissa Park, the Executive Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. The afternoon proceeded with panel discussions, working sessions, and breakout groups specifically for the campaigners. Because I was attending not as an activist, but as a member of the media, with full UN press credentials, I was not allowed in to many of these sessions. It was a pattern repeated throughout the week. While I have feet in two separate worlds, I was categorized as media for this series of days, and so some of the meetings I'd hoped to attend were closed to me but there was no lack of events, interviews, and insights to be had. In just a moment, we will continue with this week's very special episode on the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, held at the United Nations the week of November 27 through December 1st. But first, this. This is the reason you listen to Nuclear Hot Seat. For stories like this that are crucial to our growing movement, but ignored or given scant or even condescending coverage by mainstream media. As was pointed out repeatedly, nuclear weapons pose an ultimate existential threat to our planet, more deadly than even the climate crisis. It's not just the fireball explosion, but the release of deadly radiation, the kicking up of massive clouds of dust which will block the sun and cause nuclear winter, which is most definitely not a cure for global warming. Nuclear winter will block the sun and cause the death of all growing things, leading to famine and billions of deaths not only of people, but of all species. Do you get it? Nuclear weapons carry with them the unavoidable threat of omnicide, the total extinction of the human species as a result of human action human extinction through nuclear warfare, and its horrific aftermath. Pretty big story, don't you think? But no one else was there. No other media organization cared enough to send someone to pay attention to what was happening and cover the real story, that of campaigners from around the world, coming together to share thought, voice, heart, hope, and plan action to keep this world from destroying itself and all life on it. Only Nuclear Hot Seat stayed the course, with this program and more to come, to bear witness, craft reports, and give you a seat at this vitally important table. But we, I, can't keep doing this work without your help. The trip to New York took a big financial bite out of our budget, and we need your help to get back on track. So, it's the holidays. It's just a few days past Giving Tuesday, and hey, It's all tax-deductible. Nuclear Hot Seat is a 501c3 not-for-profit. So we give you a ringside seat at the fight to save the world from nuclear catastrophe, be it by intent or oops. So please, do what you can to support our work by going to NuclearHotSeat.com 
There's a red donate button there and I request that you click on it and follow the prompts and do what you can. Or if you prefer Zelle, send a payment to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful for your support and for the opportunity to continue to serve you with nuclear information from a different perspective. Now we return to this week's very special Nuclear Hot Seat episode on the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, held November 27 to December 1st at the United Nations in New York. On Monday, November 27, we moved to the General Assembly building of the United Nations itself for the opening of the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. In the UN Trusteeship Council, representatives from the 93 signatory countries and 69 states' parties, the countries that have ratified the treaty and those that are in the process, gathered for the first time. I was unable to record audio from my perch in the balcony, but will link to a written copy of the speech by ICANN Executive Director Melissa Park, a document I found both powerful and profoundly moving. It will be linked on the website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 650. Meetings continued throughout the day, every day. The government members meeting in sessions that were not open to the media, but a wide range of sessions were, so many that if I could have split myself into thirds, I still wouldn't have been able to make all of them. On Monday alone, Voices of Civil Society for a Nuclear Weapons-Free World, featuring messages from the mayors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Several hibaksha, survivors of the atomic bomb blast, and presentation from youth were included. A major component of the day was Mayors for Peace, a nonpartisan international NGO that has now grown to 8,213 member cities in 166 countries and regions around the world. We'll have a special feature next week on Nuclear Hot Seat, showcasing many members of governments speaking on what they face in their own countries and what they are doing to work for the adoption of the treaty. Here, as a sample, is a very brief interview with the first and, to date, only member of the United States Congress to attend these meetings, Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts. It's easy to feel overwhelmed and discouraged and depressed with all that's going on in the world and the direction the world is going in terms of nuclear weapons. But the bottom line is I I come away from this meeting with a lot of hope. We can do this. I mean, we can actually abolish nuclear weapons on this planet. We can save this planet from destruction in one terrible nuclear flash. It's going to require a grassroots movement. It's going to require all of us staying engaged and fighting for what's right. If ever there was a moral cause, it is the abolishment of nuclear weapons. This is something that is doable, and we are all committed to working together. Parliamentarians from all around the world gathered here today. And so I'm, I'm actually leaving here more hopeful than when I first when I arrived here. A brief snippet from a longer interview with Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, only member of the U.S. Congress to ever attend these meetings. I'll have a longer interview with Representative McGovern on next week's show, as well as interviews with the mayors of Des Moines, Iowa, the members of Canada and Scottish Parliament, and the mayor of Hiroshima. As that first afternoon moved on, there were sessions on how nuclear disarmament is taught, gender-responsive disarmament, humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons, 
and Signs of Hope for a Nuclear Weapons-Free World. Art exhibits lined the walls, and booths set up in the corridors presented information from a wide range of anti-nuclear NGOs. There was a film screening, I Want to Live On, a documentary on the downwinder victims of Soviet nuclear tests in Kazakhstan. It tells the same story we hear in New Mexico and the Marshall Islands and French Polynesia, full of government lies and denial, failure to take responsibility for those people harmed by the nuclear test blast, the intergenerational impact of exposure to nuclear reactor, and the price that innocent people have paid and continue to pay for the arsenals of nuclear countries. We'll keep you informed as to how and when that film will become available online. One of the highlights of the week was the Tuesday night presentation of the 2023 Nuclear Free Future Awards, an annual event that honors the many heroes of the global anti-nuclear movement who worked to rid the world of uranium mining, nuclear power, and nuclear weapons. This is the first time since before COVID that an in-person awards event took place, and the Blue Gallery on 46th Street was jammed with well over 100 activists ready for a more relaxed session celebrating our heroes. Before the event, I was able to talk with Klaus Biegert, who created the Nuclear Free Future Awards in 1998. Klaus Biegert, you are here at the awarding of the 2023 Nuclear Free Future Awards, and I'd like to ask you, what is it like to be in this position to be able to acknowledge people within our community who have done such superb work? I think it's a privilege because when you hear all the stories surrounding this topic, you are, feel almost powerless and you don't know how to get through the day. But when you know you can bring the people who fight for all of us into the light, the public light, so I'm very grateful for being in this position. It's empowering because all the people I meet, they are people who enjoy life and they have such a force, you know. You wouldn't think that they are dealing with such a deadly topic. Oh, we know how to party. Yeah, it's so important that we have fun. I mean, it sounds strange, but that gives us energy. And, and I have been among indigenous people a lot and it's always laughter. I also find that when I walk into a room with other activists, I'm always completely at home. Mm -hmm. Yes. I want to personally acknowledge the fact that I am a grateful recipient of the 2022 yeah. Nuclear Free Future Award in Education. And I want to thank you personally for that. I have no idea how it came about. But however it did, I am deeply grateful. And it really was changing in terms of not only how perhaps other people saw me, but how I saw myself and the importance of my work. You gave that to me. Yeah, that exactly you, what you are describing, that those people should be acknowledged for their stubbornness. And sometimes we need somebody who tells us. Well, you certainly told me, and I am eternally grateful for it. It's wonderful and unexpected to be meeting you here tonight. I did not know you would be here. And... Just thank you so much because you are doing a tremendous amount on behalf of all the rest of us. I like to open doors and I like to connect. 
And when I see that people walk through the door and that the two people who I want to be connected, if they become active, and it's a great joy. It's like you are affecting reality because it's so crazy. If you would have to invent a source of energy which is endangering the coming generations, which is destroying all forms of life by just making it happen. And it's extremely expensive. I mean, if somebody would come up now with this plan, nuclear energy is just the door for nuclear bombs. And that's why we paint it so nicely, not to endanger the future of the bomb. It's almost as if the world is owned by nuclear and governments do what the nuclear industry wants, be it give them money or give them permission or appropriate the money of the country to go to them before it goes to the people. I don't know how to break that stranglehold, but I certainly try to give people heart and hope every week that, yes, we can do it. Yeah. I interviewed Pete Seeger once and he said... Who would have thought the wall would come down? It came down. <laughs> and there's always time for change. And Edward Snowden or even the Pope show us that an individual person can have an impact on how we perceive. We often say, or I hear people saying, what can I do? You can do things. And you don't, we cannot control the impact of what we do. But we just have to trust that the person we convince to speak out might talk to others. I'll leave you with this thought. You might know the proper answer, but do you know the, in terms of physics, the definition of a quantum shift or a quantum leap? I'm not sure. People think that a quantum leap is some enormous change yeah. that takes place. But in truth, in physics, a quantum shift, a quantum leap, is the smallest possible piece of change that can happen that then extrapolates out over time and space into something much larger. That's what I see all of us doing. We're all like dropping those little quantum nano nuggets wherever we can in the hope that some will take root. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you've helped me keep going on the battle. You heartened me at a time when I needed it. So bless you for this work. Thank you for doing this. I was not part of the jury to pick you, so <laughs> you can thank me that I invented the Nuclear for Future Award. And I thank you for having the foresight, the ambition, the vision, and the follow-through mm. to create these awards and keep them going for so long. Klaus Spiegert, founder of the Nuclear Free Future Awards. This year's winners are Tina Cordova, a seventh-generation native New Mexican, cancer survivor, and the co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium. Tina has campaigned for more than 18 years to bring attention to the negative health effects suffered by the unknowing, unwilling, uncompensated, innocent victims of the first nuclear blast on Earth which took place at the Trinity site in New Mexico in 1945. Benedict Kabua Madison is a young U.S.-based Marshallese activist who works to educate both U.S. and international audiences about the terrible legacy of the 67 U.S. atomic tests conducted in the Marshall Islands between 1946 and 1958, as well as the ongoing health, environmental, 
and cultural consequences. Hinamora Morgant Cross is a French Polynesian woman in her mid 30s whose realization that her own leukemia was a legacy of the French atomic tests in the South Pacific led her into activism and to pressure the French government into both acknowledgement of responsibility and medical and financial support. And finally, an Honorary Lifetime Achievement Award was given posthumously to Daniel Ellsberg. It was awarded by his good friend Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, and accepted by his son, Robert Ellsberg, who is an author, editor, and publisher in his own right, and who spoke eloquently about his father's desire to spend his life not being remembered necessarily for the Pentagon Papers, but for his 50 years of work against nukes. On Wednesday, November 29th, which was only the halfway point in the meetings, two sessions were held on the role of the financial community in TPNW implementation. Its premise? Investors have a stake in preventing nuclear weapons use at any time and in any place, and government actions, including the TPNW, sanctions, and other activities impact markets and can be reinforced by the financial community. Here to explain more about the role of the financial community in getting rid of nuclear weapons is Susie Snyder. Susie was formerly the head of Don't Bank on the Bomb, and currently her role is as program coordinator at the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. She is as clear, concise, and ebullient as she has been in previous interviews here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Susie Snyder, we have talked many times through the years about your work with Don't Bank on the Bomb, but you have moved on to a new position. Tell us what it is, where it is, and what you are doing. So I'm still working with the financial community, but now I work with the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and I'm a project coordinator. That means not only do I continue our advocacy with the financial community, with financial institutions to get them to divest from nuclear weapon producers, but I also get to work on big international projects that we have that take all hands on deck in order to facilitate our team being the best that they can be. What kind of progress have you seen since you started working with First Don't Bank on the Bomb, and when was it that you switched over to ICANN? So I switched to ICANN about a year and a half ago. And when we started Don't Bank on the Bomb, there were maybe 10 or 12 financial institutions that had policies against nuclear weapons. Now there are more than 100 institutions that reject investment in weapons of mass destruction, including nuclear weapons. And it's been amazing. Not only that, but since the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons has gone into effect, we've seen more and more institutions not just quietly divest, but proudly announce that they will have nothing to do with the nuclear weapons industry. And I think a big part of that is having a treaty, and it's the continued work of campaigners around the world. How has this been going in the United States? Has there been any kind of notable response to your appeal to divest from nuclear weapons producing companies? Not only are we seeing investors in the U.S. reject nuclear weapons, 
but we're also seeing cities take up the call. So from Ojai, California to Cambridge, Massachusetts, there are resolutions passing calling on city councils to make sure that any funds they're responsible for have nothing to do with the nuclear weapons industry. In Washington state, uh, the resolutions went so far as to make it that they cannot do business with companies involved in the production of nuclear weapons. We have resolutions in Wisconsin, in New York City, there's legislation, New York City's five pension funds are some of the largest in the world, and they also are obliged to divest from the bomb. How do you go about spreading this message? Is it all done digitally and virtually? Do you have people go in person from ICANN? Is it all done on a local level? It's a combination. And that's the great thing about working on divestment issues. Wherever you are, there's a way to be involved. So if you want to go into your local bank and just ask them, hey, do you have a policy about nuclear weapons? That helps start the conversation to end investments in the bomb. And if you want to go and meet with the bank at higher levels, that's also very possible. We do a combination of of all of these things. We do events that involve banks and other investors. And for this meeting of states parties in the Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, we put out a call to investors to sign on to a joint statement. And more than 90 investors signed on, representing more than $1 trillion in assets under management. And so those are people who are committed to stopping the nuclear weapons industry and putting an end to nuclear weapons forever. If someone were to want a script of some sort to guide their conversation, be it with a bank manager, their financial advisor, or perhaps someone from their pension fund, do you have materials available that they can look at and study and either memorize or have in front of them to read off of if they need it? A script is so helpful just as a prompt, and we encourage people to use the resources we have. There are two places they can go. One is don'tbankonthebomb.com, has a ton of resources and it gets regularly updated. The other is divest.icanw.org, which has additional resources and ways and means to help people stop banking on the bomb and again, put an end to this industry. A lot of times individuals think, oh, well, you know, I just have a pittance in savings. I can't go up against the big guys. But what is still the importance of them contacting their bank? Margaret Mead said, never, you know, never doubt a small group of committed people can make serious change in the world. It's a paraphrase, but nevertheless, it just takes a few people to put continued pressure to make the change. Every significant change we've seen has started with one person making a phone call or sending a letter, writing a letter to the editor, publishing an opinion piece. Every change starts with somebody, and anybody can be that person. I'm so glad you're doing this work. (laughs) Thank you so much, Libby. It's great to join you again, and I'm so glad to get this information out to people. And I encourage people, check out the resources. Don'tbankonthebomb.com has tons of info, and we are really excited to expand this work everywhere in the world. We'll do what we can to help here at Nuclear Hot Seat. Susie Snyder, now with the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. One of the most profound sessions that took place, at least to me, was in a small conference room across the street from the UN complex at the Baha'i International Community's UN office. It took place as both an in-person and an on-Zoom meeting and update between activists at the 2023 UN Climate Change Conference, COP28 in Dubai, and 
our meetings at the United Nations in New York. Two major events dealing with climate and the long-term survival of life on Earth, reaching out halfway across the world to discuss the links that we share in these two existential threats and learn from each other to help build a stronger movement on both sides. The conversation included activists from the Warheads to Windmills Coalition, International Peace Bureau, Peace Boat, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, Fossil Fuel Treaty Initiative, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and more. If I can invoke the work of Michelangelo, it was like watching the fingers of Adam and God reaching out to touch on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Second Meeting of States Parties and COP28. Commiserating on shared problems, celebrating the gains that have been made, and figuring out how we can work together more closely in the coming years so that all of these issues can be resolved to the health and safety of people and the environment. Now, if we can just get climate activists to break the thought bubble and reject nuclear energy as some kind of imaginary savior for climate change and realize that it's just a piece of well-financed nuclear industry propaganda that has inconceivably taken hold within governments, academia, and the climate activist ecologist community, we would all really be on track to save the future of this planet. I conducted many more interviews than there is time for on a single show, so in the coming weeks I'll be presenting additional interviews, including more activist voices and interviews with members of governments from around the world who were in attendance. Know that beyond these interviews, the people I met, the connections I made, will continue to enrich the information stream on Nuclear Hot Seat for years to come, starting with some exciting featured interviews next month. For now, I'd like to leave you with this thought. It is common to feel down and depressed about the nuclear situation, like nothing can be done, you're alone with your concerns, and you cannot possibly make a difference no matter how hard you try. But you need to know that somewhere in the world, in another time zone, latitude and longitude, right now, someone, probably more than one, is working for disarmament, to end nuclear weapons, to find ways to clean up the mess the nuclear industry has made on this planet against governments, politicians, compromised agencies that are supposed to protect us and don't, and the obscenely moneyed nuclear industry, which has all the money in the world to back their propaganda, we may feel absolutely powerless to do anything top-down to influence change and to get rid of nu the nuclear industry's radioactive cash cow. But from the grassroots up, that is our power. There is plenty we can do and say and accomplish with women and men of all ages everywhere working to end the nuclear nightmare one letter, one phone call, one meeting, one demonstration, one petition, one anything we can think of at a time. Can we do it? Can we get there before it's too late? I don't know. But we can and must go in that direction. In the Bible, Moses never got to the promised land, but he did point the way for others to follow, and they did. I know that I will not live to see the end of this journey, but oh, to be part of it 
and in such company, all those countries, all those activists, plant the seeds of thought and action at the grassroots level and watch the way this thing can grow. I tend to be not optimistic about our future, given what nuclear is and what it does. I try to keep the worst of it under control, or at least not visible, and use the anger and the rage and the pain to fuel this podcast every week. But now, having experienced those days at the United Nations, in community with others who are neither petty nor fearful, I realize that they are our future, perhaps our last best hope to even have one. If we are to succeed in saving the planet from the ravages of nuclear warfare and all of the rest of the nuclear fuel chain, these are the people who will do it. This experience left me honored, humbled, and moved to tears that I got to be a part of such an amazing experience. And I left with a sense of wonder, possibility, and, yes, hope. We can do this. We've got a real chance of pulling this off. So let's go, all of us, right now, together. Details to follow. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. You need to subscribe to get Nuclear Hot Seat via email every week. A single email with a link to that week's show and a brief summary of some of the information that you will find in there. And we make it so easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and a yellow box will pop up. You can't miss it. Put in your first name, put in an email address, and you will be notified as soon as each week's episode posts. Or if you prefer, go to your favorite podcast channel and sign up there. Now, I said this repeatedly while I was in New York, and I mean it. You are all my sources. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send that information to me in an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. If you don't send it to me, it's catch-as-catch-can that I find it somewhere in mainstream media. And by that time, it's gone through so many filters and so many changes, it may not even be the story you want to get out. So cut to the chase. Let me know. I will do everything in my power to get it on the show. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. So if you appreciate Nuclear Hot Seat supporting you with all this nuclear news... Do what you can to support Nuclear Hot Seat back, and we will really appreciate it and be grateful. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as you cite, at minimum, the name of the program and our website. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, that as Melissa Park, executive director of ICANN, said, every species will be harmed in a nuclear war. Only one species can stop it. There you have it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. 
nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.